0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. So I just got this really cool new pair of leggings from blissbodyshop.com. And I just wanted to tell you all about it because they're super cool. And um, they ended up giving me a little code so you all can try them for 15% off. So it's blissbodyshop.com, B-L-I-S-S, blissbodyshop.com. And if you enter Zivi Owens 15 Z-I-B-B-Y-O-D, W-E-N-S-15, you will get 15% off of these leggings. And I wear leggings all the time on the weekends uh, with my big oversized vest and some sort of comfy sweatshirt or something to run around and chase my kids. And I travel in them a lot. And, um, I mean, who doesn't need leggings? And I should mention that I work out in them, but I do that far less than all the other things I do. Anyway, go check it out, blissbodyshop.com, and use the code ZippyOwens15 and get yourself some leggings. I'm here with Malcolm Hansen, who's the debut author of They Come in All Colors, a novel. He is the winner of the BCALA Black Caucus American Library Association Literary Award for a first novelist and was nominated for a 2019 NAACP Image Award. Malcolm was born at the Florence Crittenden Home for Unwed Mothers in Chattanooga, Tennessee and adopted by two civil rights activists. He grew up in Morocco, Spain, Germany, and the U.S., He attended Stanford after only two years of high school, after which he worked for several years in the software industry before traveling throughout Central and South America and Europe for a decade. He then returned to the U.S. to complete an MFA in fiction from Columbia. He currently lives in New York City with his wife and two sons. So welcome, Malcolm. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Can you please tell listeners what They Come In All Colors is about? Absolutely. Well,
1: first, is it okay if I use swear words? All right. Okay.
0: Thanks for the heads up.
1: Okay, great.
0: Get the kids out of the car.
1: Yeah, this is for moms who swear. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's about a 15-year-old named Huey Fairchild who uh, royally fucks up. And... We learn early on uh, pretty quickly in the story what it is he's done. So basically he's poisoned who is at that point his best friend induces an anaphylactic shock, almost kills him. The question that the story deals with is why did he do that? So what we learn is that there's been a betrayal and in the eyes of Huey Fairchild, a pretty, a big deal. Um, and so he spins the the story explaining himself to us. And so in a sense, it's a mea culpa, and he's explaining why it is that he's done what he's done. So over the course of that explanation, we discover uh, he takes us back seven years to one summer when he was seven years old. It's actually eight years back. And he recounts the circumstances and events that he went through that summer and that helped shape him as a person at that point in his childhood. And as that thread unfolds, we also discover the nature of the betrayal. And so both of these, you know, things get unfolded and we come to understand why Huey has done the thing that he's done and why the nature of the betrayal was so, had the effect that it had on him and thereby understanding him a little bit better.
0: And what inspired you to write this book? Why, this is your first novel... Why this
1: one? I think because it had an urgency to it that was that I couldn't ignore. So I have, you know, uh, was disappointed as a young reader and even as an adult reader with with stories that dealt with kind of pretty heavy interracial issues. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, you know, happy with how those were written and how they were dealt with. And I wanted to take a stab at it. I thought I could, you know, I wanted to see if I could do better.
0: And I just have a a random question. When he was spending that summer, when he was spending the summer in the fields, digging with these, you spent a lot of time describing these these like two feet holes and yeah. sticks. Can you just like, explain to me what they were doing in the fields? Like, so I-
1: yeah. So they're stack poles. So a stack pole has to be dug because it's the backbone for a haystack. So if you don't have a, you know, the haystack gets built around the stack pole, or else the haystack doesn't kind of stand up. So he spends his his father's a peanut farmer on the South in Georgia, and so his entire summer is with his single kind of helping hand that they have. Of Tobias Muncie working in the fields, putting in these damned stack poles that are going to be once they harvest their peanuts, where they they set them out to dry.
0: I get it. Yeah. Sorry, I kept. I feel like I was like in these fields for so long, and I'm yeah. like, what exactly? How does the, how do the mechanics of this work? So yeah. thank you for. I mean, I know it was in the book, but it's always good to. Yes. <laughs> I'm happy you explain it. And then it's so ironic, then, as somebody who's worked on a peanut farm, to then poison his classmate years later. With peanut butter right. in a sandwich, right? And how you made that whole connection, right? And, which, so, as a mother of children with peanut allergies, it was like horrified to read. Right. It like turn right. my stomach, but I like how you made
1: brought that, that all, back.
0: yeah, brought that back. Yeah. <laughs> so you decide to have Huey, who has this very, you know, it takes this, also this book takes place a long time ago. This is like in the early '60s, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And then he. Moves from this farm stackpole, trying to get into the one pool in the neighborhood existence. You can feel the heat, like bearing down on you, and it's like very. You can just feel it. I feel like I'm in these fields. Then Kiwi zooms up to New York City, and is suddenly like basically attending St. Bernard's, or I don't know where you had him go, but like this a school on the Upper East Side, and trying to fit in with that whole scene, which is just such a juxtaposition from. The other part of the book, like two completely different worlds. What made you have Huey come up here?
1: Right. So there are a few opportunities, opportunities there that I felt I had to take. One was, you know, the last wave of the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. So his mother is on that last wave. So, you know, these are African-Americans fleeing Jim Crow South, mm-hmm. trying to make a better life for themselves up north. So that's Huey's mother in a nutshell. By the Upper East Side, Because, you know, know, within the, the framework of the North, it epitomizes the establishment and old money. So I wanted, you know, in a way for Huey to come full circle, Because although he establishes the, pardon me, although he escapes the South, he finds himself still confronting with the same types of of racial issues that he, you know, that he dealt with down there, albeit in a different way. And I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. So it was one that I, you know, so here he is up north and he still finds himself very much
0: in a way right where he started. You have such a moving scene, too, with his mother the day after he gets accused of—I won't give it away, but after something happens in Mm -hmm, school, mm -hmm. and they go home, and he's just like, I hate it here. What Mm -hmm, are we doing here? mm -hmm. And it's just him and his mom, Mm -hmm. and he's like— you know, and she sort of says to him, You, you think I'm really out here having a blast mm-hmm. as like the housekeeper and nanny to this family and mm-hmm. taking care of this lady's twin so she can go get a mm-hmm. pedicure? Like my life pretty much sucks too, but what can we do about right. it? I mean it was such a move I just like it was so visual too, and he's sitting there wondering, like, well, did you make a better dinner for the people you take care of than you're making for me? And right. oh it was it was a heartbreaking moment, mm-hmm. really. I mean,
1: and, and so it's a fictional school, right? I wanna say that up front that he's he's in this very prestigious elite school that he's in. But I think the we can we get the idea, and of course, as we learned in, within you know a few years of that experience, it shapes him mm-hmm. right. So that provides another layer of complexity to this character as he evolves. Wow.
0: So can I ask a little more about your background, which Absolutely. I find like so fascinating? Hmm. So you were born in Tennessee yes. to a home for unwed mothers. Yes. You were adopted by civil rights activists and then moved all over the world. Yes. Tell me a little about your upbringing and then how it's shaped your writing. Like when did writing start fall into this? When did you start writing and the whole thing? So
1: I was adopted to an interracial couple, first of all. So my my adoptive father is white and my adoptive mother is black. And they're both very political, although my father was arguably more kind of, of an activist than my mother was. And uh, he was a project director, at the Arkansas project director for SNCC, uh, very active. But he left the country after I was both he and my, my mom left the country when I was one. And a lot of it had to do with the way in which things were, you know, this country was politically then. And he had basically, I think in his eyes, he had given the civil rights movement some of his best years. And he was confronting kind of the new realities of that movement and how the movement was as a white individual. He was beginning to feel, you know, that his place was kind of in question what his role was. So he left, and they first went to Morocco briefly, and then to Spain. My earliest childhood memories are in Spain. And then they settled down in Germany on an American military base. And my mother worked as a civil servant, past tense, and she's since passed. And she worked as a psychologist. And my father was, at that time, a graduate student. And they stayed there for uh, the next several years. They actually separated there. My mother came back before he, he did. Relocated in Virginia, again, on you know, a military base, some on a naval base. Continued working as a, as a civil servant, as a psychologist. Substance abuse mm-hmm. was her area of specialty. And uh, my father came back to, to Boston pursuing his uh, doctorate at that time. And so I came back when they separated. My mother having returned before he did, I came back and lived with her in Virginia. And with your brother as well. And both. with my brother. Okay. And and so you can probably play some of that with, okay. I think, a story that you might have read, a short <laughs> little uh, yes. thing. And then uh, when my father joined us back stateside a few years later, my brother and I both came and lived with him in Boston and stayed with him from there, there on.
0: Wow. So when did you find writing? When did you realize that you loved it? Or do I mean? I assume you love it because you do it. But I shouldn't assume that. You're
1: right, and it's you know. Although I do love it, uh, I will say that it's it was. I have a very quirky relationship with you know with the whole. I wasn't an early reader. I very much kind of my father. You know, just I felt uh, was a very heavy-handed father, and so both his activism, his politics, and his You know, and his ideas about schooling were things that I resisted kind of, I think, by nature. I'm a very resistant person. I have to kind of come to certain realities on my own. Mm -hmm. So early on, I resisted them. But then sure enough, I came around and I began to see, I think, uh, the light in his ways. And then became quite a heavy reader. And I always felt like I had something that that I wanted to write, but I lacked the courage to do it. It took me kind of going on a professional route after I graduated college and kind of seeing the flesh and blood of what the realities of the professional life looked like, even for you know, a business or a profession that was valued and supposed to be exciting Mm -hmm. and new, and I'm referring to this, to, you know, internet and software in the mid 90s. I was very disillusioned with it and didn't find much meaning in it. And, you know, figured that if I was going to be miserable, I may as well be miserable pursuing my dreams. And so I think that was the uh, first step
0: That's a a funny way of looking at it. (laughs) Like, maybe your dreams won't make you so miserable.
1: Right. I mean, I'm hoping. And did it work? (laughs) Well, you know what? I went all in. Okay. So I worked, you know, as I said, in software for a few years. I had some money saved. And then at the point in which I chose to break from that profession, I sold everything that I had. And And I've been a motorcyclist since my adolescence and rode down to Ecuador overland on motorcycle. And I made a promise to myself that I didn't know what I wanted to do next with my life, but that on that trip I would figure it out. So I ran out of money in Ecuador, and I, you know, pulled the the bike over, and I found a place to stay, and I bought a typewriter, and I started writing, and I didn't stop. So I, I told myself that I wouldn't return to the States until I had a manuscript, so that's what I did.
0: Wow. That's Four so, years later, that's like I feel like that's from another era. That story, it's like it is a typewriter and the yeah. dirt roads yeah. and the motorcycle. And yeah,
1: well, there are cumbersome laptops, but I, I didn't have one with me, and I quickly got a laptop. Okay, so good. I wasn't yeah. with the typewriter for very long. Oh, you
0: can borrow but. mine if you
1: yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah,
0: wow, that's crazy. So, you wrote a letter on your website, which I wanted to talk about also. Mm-hmm. So you, as a boy, you said you felt neither dark or light enough. So meanwhile, can I ask you a silly qu- I mean, this no, might sound ridiculous. Absolutely. So your adoptive parents are biracial. Yes. Do you know what your biological parents were? Yeah.
1: So, you know, my wife, this was, you know, something that pursued me through adolescence. I mean, I resisted. I told myself I didn't care and that I didn't, I couldn't, you know, I didn't couldn't be bothered there're too many more immediate issues in my life that i had to you know give my attention to to be, to kind of look back mm-hmm. and so of course when i got married and we started having kids that changed that right and it's like well there's some things you need to be you need to know for the benefit of your kids health-wise. Right. right. So I was convinced to, you know, to initiate that search for my biological parents, and, and I did, and discovered, you know, a little bit about my father and my mother. Thankfully, uh, through the Georgia Adoption Registry, there were some pretty detailed records that I had access to. So it was a trove, and it was an amazing experience. Unfortunately, my biological father died in a drowning incident oh, no. early on in his life, and my biological mother is still with us, but because of complications—the You know, I was adopted. I was given up for adoption, not just because she was a young mother. I mean, she was seventeen years old, I think, around when she gave birth to me. But it was an interracial uh, relationship that she had had. You know, we're in '69 in Georgia, and so there were racial motivations behind you know my adoption. And so she proceeded to. uh, And
0: was your mother what race? She's white. Your your mother's white. She's
1: white. And your
0: father was black. Okay.
1: Yes. And so there were, you know, she couldn't, she, she, something that wasn't, uh, something that was permissible and being a child out of wedlock with a black man. And so she went on and had another life. And so we have been in correspondence. We had one letter exchange and, and she answered some of my more urgent questions, but unfortunately, and she was very kind about it, very gracious about it. But I had wanted a picture and she wasn't able to share that with me. And she wasn't, you know, at a place where she could reveal her identity because she has a life and, and it doesn't permit her being able to go back in that way and she has kids and all kinds of things that don't know about this this part of her past and and I understood that it's a little bit you know it's not easy but I understand it such as life
0: that is hard i mean not e- i mean that's just to get that phone call or just i mean that's just I'm sorry, I've, I'm just putting myself in your shoes and thinking, like, how much you would just want. Like, I would feel like it would answer so many questions if I could just meet this person. Or, like, yeah. you know, it's such a crucial part of your identity as much as you want to put it aside, yes, right? Yes. But, like, where you come from is just one of these, like, base things. And then to, yes. for her to still deny that to you, that just seems so mean. Well, it, it's— I mean, I understand. Yeah. I understand I, she wants I, to, like, I, pretend I, it didn't I happen. try, Yeah.
1: And so for me, I have to remind myself that I think my takeaway is that the past is still with us. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel that my personal experience bears that out in a very kind of poignant way. So there are very real consequences for me that relate to... You know, you know, nothing yeah. more than kind of racial improprieties or right. social improprieties that are still with us, that still weigh on people and affect what they feel that they can and can't do in places that they are not willing to go. Right. And, the, you know, interestingly, her mother is still alive. So my biological, my maternal grandmother is still alive. And, of course, she was, she's a huge maternal figure in the household, and as I've come to learn, and was with, you know, My, obviously, was there when this whole, when she was 17 years old, part of this whole playing out. And so it's a pretty, yeah, it's a second novel, maybe.
0: I was just going to say, this is a movie. This whole thing is a movie. I mean... You should just skip the fiction and just go straight to memoir. I mean,
1: no, well, see, I love what what I really enjoy doing is I enjoy creating a world where I can somehow bring the emotional kind of truth to mm-hmm. these types of experience to the characters that I create, and in that way get you know. 'Cause there is something that I can that when you craft these these fictional stories that you can bring to light in ways that we don't there aren't too many other ways that we can do this in mm-hmm. our world. And so
0: I feel that's that's very special and and that's why
1: I love fiction writing.
0: To be honest, fiction writing essentially is like an exercise in therapy for basically mm-hmm. everyone who writes. I mean, I've talked to so many people now. I mean it's really like how we all work through different issues. Yeah. But you're you're like It's as if you're a child, not not you, but I'm thinking about my kids, like in play therapy, Mm -hmm. right? They have you draw a picture Mm -hmm. and that like Mm -hmm. brings out all your feelings. Mm -hmm. And here we are as grownups and we're writing, oh, like here are the characters, but I'm going to put all of my feelings onto these characters. And in that way, get them out and like, Mm -hmm. and deal with them Mm -hmm. and help other people while I'm at it.
1: I told my wife for many years early on. Pre-publishing—that mm-hmm. you know what, even if even if it all failed, it was like it was still therapy for yeah. me. Yeah, no,
0: you needed it. So you had to. I
1: was allowed to go to places where I wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to go otherwise. And and one of my big learning experiences in, in the writing process was realizing that all, not all writing is fun writing. Mm-hmm. That there was actually some places, uh, you know, places that I had to go creatively that were actually quite painful and difficult. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a big learning process for me.
0: And now you're trying to figure out how to bring all of this and all of your assorted feelings, especially about mm-hmm. race coming from essentially two mm-hmm. mixed-race mm-hmm. marriages mm-hmm. in a way, to now you're having children mm-hmm. and ha- trying to—you have a, an essay on your website where you're going about to go swimming with your mm-hmm. son, and mm-hmm. how much do you tell him about what's been mm-hmm. in the news? What should you stop, and mm-hmm. what do we give our kids yeah. to grapple with? Yeah. So, I don't know. How, how are you feeling about it in terms of being a parent now?
1: You know, it's, it's really complicated, and it's not easy, and it's no, you know, it's no easier than it was when I was a kid. I kind of had to sort through it all a father who thought he was helping me and, you know, perhaps wasn't helping me in the way that I needed to be helped or as much as he thought he was helping me, but he did what he could. And I try to do the same with my two sons and and try to be aware of my own limitations because not to kind of impose on them too much of my reality and, and what, you know, I carry with me from the past. And so I try to let them be themselves as much as possible. I try to take a minimalistic approach to parenting in the sense of, you know, no... Try not to be heavy-handed, although admittedly I struggle with that. So but when racial issues, you know, come up, we've had conversations, but I, I let I try to let them kind of muddle through that as much as possible. I try not to kind of dictate what reality is. And certainly, you know, the racial landscape has changed so much, especially for you know, people of kind of multiracial descent, especially for people who are fair-skinned and don't look, you know, their race. You know, because you can imagine in, in, you know, the early mid-60s, it's like we were still very much under the... The kind of principle of this one-drop rule, you know, it doesn't matter how you look. If you know that you have a black individual somewhere in your ancestry, you're, you know, that's what you are. That defines you. And, that's, and that's, that's changed, certainly, to a degree where we have a more kind of nuanced and sort of fluid sense of identity, which is helpful in some ways. And certainly, you know, we have the languages more evolved, and, but things certainly crop up. So, you know, I mean, my, the fact of the matter is is that my two children don't look as if they have African American ancestry, and so it's something that they have to be aware of. And I try to just remind them of that. It's really hard to do because my wife is Swedish, and certainly my mother's passed. So their, you know, their paternal grandmother, who was black, albeit my adoptive parent, is no longer there, even as a figure. Right. You know what I mean? To someone to point back to, my earliest, my son, my son, my elder son has a vague, distant memory of her one Christmas, but that's it. Mm-hmm. So trying to make you know that part of their They're you know their their family known and real and immediate and urgent and important. It's a struggle. And I feel like that's probably the most important obligation I have. And then what they do with that is very much up to them. I love the fact that there are that, you know, they're at a school where there are other people that are multiracial. That's a big deal Mm because I didn't have that. And Mm -hmm. so it's not, you know, they don't feel so, I think, completely different. You know, they can see other like brownish individuals of ambiguous kind of race and. But they're working through it, you know, and and certainly it's what's fascinating is what's it going to look like when their parents and I'm a granddad. Mm-hmm. You know what I, mean? I mean, we realize just how fluid all of this is, and we can't be married to our beliefs too much because things are always changing. You know?
0: Well, that's the whole thing too. I mean, I feel like we're at a point right now, and with so much divisiveness in the country, and mm. people wanting to like draw so many lines, and yeah, there's so much hate and anger, mm-hmm. and yet, you know. The U.S. has traditionally been known as this melting pot, and mm-hmm. everybody has a little bit of everything. I mean, even as you were talking, it made me think of the Holocaust, right? Because yeah. you could be killed if you had, you know, your great great grandmother yep. was Jewish. Like yep. it doesn't matter how much, yes. right? It's in there, That's <laughs> the point. Yes. right? And exactly. they can figure it out. So exactly. it's it's almost the same. I mean, there's some similarities there. Yeah. But as as someone who sort of embodies the mixed race persona in a mm. way, and especially as you write about all these different issues, like. Mm. Where do you come out on this whole race racial anger situation when yeah. so many people are a combination of things?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, so for me, I was writing with—it was important that part of why I, I wrote this story and that part of why it was really uh, urgent to me was because I didn't want for people to forget about, you know, a period— well, let me just back up a second. Okay. I've had people tell me, oh, you're so lucky— Oh, both from the point of view of like, oh, you have such a cool kind of, you know, racial, you know, background. And so cool is the descriptive word or that I have the source of all of these stories as being, you know, this these kind of experiences uh, that have been, you know, painful and difficult ones as being something that, oh, that's so cool. Because <laughs> you can, you know, this is this is now for you to kind of uh, part of your treasure chest that you can explore and kind of, you know, create create stories from, and but there's a lot of pain there and there's a lot of, you know, sadness and there's a lot of, you know, I grappled with a lot of just not really knowing who I was and not really knowing how I, and even to this day, it never goes away. And that's something that I, I want, you know, that's a very big part of the story where, you know, kind of is that this main character, Huey Fairchild, kind of comes along. He's not where he started, but he's not all the way there mm-hmm. by any stretch. Mm-hmm. And so... That's just an important It's important to capture a time in our history where looking like I look, you know, didn't feel and wasn't the way that it was today. And in case anyone forgets, I want the story to be there for to help people remember. And you know hopefully you can it'll put you in the flesh in the shoes of this individual, and you will get to see a firsthand account of of what reality looked like for someone who was who looked like that at that time in our history. So it shouldn't be that far from us, you know.
0: And tell me a little about your writing process. Where do you like to write?
1: Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm an early morning person. I'm just now getting back in the groove. You know, the first year after publication was just crazy. I was just done and i wasn't sure that i would ever write anything again because it was it it literally squeezed me for all i was worth and i put everything that i had into it felt like it was my one chance and treated it like it was my one chance i treated it like you know what i'm going to go i'm going to assume that i only have one story to tell and this is it damn it you know i better i better put every last ounce of energy that I have to dedicate on this topic and to this character in this book, because once it's done, it's done. I'm not, you know. And so it was, you know, I was just, I was done. I was toast. I felt like I had no more to give. And after that first year, and so slowly I've been coming around and I feel like I'm becoming more rejuvenated and have Kind of got an insight onto you know what I want to tackle next. So what I did this past summer, my wife and kids went off to see their grandparents and uh, in Sweden, and I hunkered down here in the city and just you know pulled the curtains closed and said I'm going to figure out this this next book and this is my chance. You know what life is like with kids. You don't you have to make yeah. that mm-hmm. happen. It doesn't just you know. It, doesn't just happen on its own. So I felt like that was a very productive period for me. I was able to get back to a place of creativity and energy and urgency and and I, I have more in me. So yeah, the mornings are the mornings are where it's at. The earlier I can get started, the better I like to really harvest those first juices of the day. And that person, I try to get into two shifts, you know, pre and post, and I, you know, and then come eight or nine, I'm done.
0: Eight or nine at night? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Well, not done with the writing, but like, you know, the writing will end at six or seven. But I mean, your brain and everything else is just like, you've given the day everything that you have to give and it's, you're ready to call it a day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Do you have any advice to aspiring authors?
1: Yeah, I do. I was actually thinking about this. And I think one of the things that has really helped me along the way is to never throw anything away and be a hoarder of words. And treat them, even though you know, you, they come out and you might not be happy with them and you might be frustrated with them, you might be completely dissatisfied and disappointed and depressed, assume that they mean something and that you just haven't figured out what they mean.
0: I like that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for uh, your beautiful novel.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of
0: course. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Just a reminder, go to Bliss Body Shop and enter code Owens 15 and get yourself a new pair of leggings for 15% off. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Books. thanks so much to steve and ryan at texture sound for the sound editing and thank you to morning moon productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music thanks for listening you could always email me at zibby at zibby